Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual Podcast. Today's episode is an interview I did late last year with Ilham Saudi, the co-founder and director of Lawyers for Justice in Libya. Accountability is a theme running through this entire conversation, whether to the law, to colleagues, donors and a board, or to beneficiaries of an organization. I knew that the topic was what Ilham works on every day, but that depth of insight was very refreshing. I learned a lot from her about starting and running an NGO, and it was nice to see some of our own struggles and thought processes mirrored, including on how to think about funders. The second half of the interview is available on Patreon for our supporters, where we go into some more depth. And there are some minor audio issues towards the end of the recording, which I hope listeners will forgive. Without further ado, here's Ilham Saudi. So I don't want to focus on the Libya situation itself, as your own podcast, Libya Matters, is a far better resource on that. And also we could never do it justice in a single episode. Um, but I want to zoom out of the day to day and talk about the field of human rights more generally, um, including your own experiences. Um, there's a lot of things that I've realized over the years as I've been building our organization, Kawakibi Foundation, and I'm really curious how closely they map onto um, your own experiences as the founder of Lawyers for Justice in Libya, um, because so much of the human rights field is very different to what you perceive it to be from the outside. Um, so to start off, I was curious how you got into this in the first place. You come from a commercial law background, right? I do, I do. Um, I, I always feel that I have to answer this question in two parts, because one was my plan for having a human rights organization focusing on Libya and then the reality of having a human rights organization focusing on Libya. And I think, you know, I, I had this very, I'm, I'm a planner. I'm a person who lives by to-do lists. I'm a person who, you know, December is exciting because I get to buy a planner for the year. I'm, so I'm, I'm very much a planner as a person. And I uh, had gone into commercial law um, very much with the view that I had volunteered a lot in, uh, in human rights um, organizations, etc. whilst I was at, at school and I was thinking of that. But one of the things that really got on my mind at university was all the, you know, the only, a lot of the really technically good lawyers were headhunted very early on from um, the commercial law firms and they were sort of taken away. And the only people who really could do uh, human rights work from at the beginning of their career were people who either could afford the lower pays, and so they're sort of people who by definition are from privileged backgrounds, or um, people who didn't get the jobs at the at the law firms. I know that sounds really sounds really awful, but um, I'll say that for a minute, which is why you can almost see the the recruitment of people to commercial law firms starts at university, whereas really the career in human rights always starts postgraduate. It's a much later point in your life. So I had this quite, you know, precocious idea that I was going to go to a law firm, run, you know, learn how to run a ruthless law firm and bring that ethos to civil society. Um, that was kind of what my big dream was. I would do that, uh, get really good at it. I'd save some money. Uh, I would then set up my own NGO. Um, and to a certain degree, I, it kind of worked in 2010. Uh, I... I resigned um, from my position at the law firm I was at, and I started a master's in, in human rights uh, law at SOAS. And I thought, okay, this is my first step. I'm going to do this for a year, enjoy being a student again, uh, really indulge in this area of law now that I have the luxury to do that. 
um, then do some volunteering, maybe at some of the bigger NGOs, and maybe in a year or two, I'll start thinking about starting my own one. But then obviously 2011 happened in the middle of my master's degree, and so everything got expedited. And LFJL, which is uh, the organization I run now, came out of that, not out of my long-term plan. Uh, and so actually LFJL came in a very spontaneous way. Um, there was a Libyan lawyer in the diaspora who contacted five other Libyan lawyers in the diaspora, including myself, saying, look, all of us have contacts, all of us are really good lawyers, what can we do to help this cause? At the time, it was a cause for all of us. Um, and we sort of all came together in, in a very ad hoc way to, to kind of be a very responsive to what's happening on the ground and provide legal advice. Um, and I remember the very first meeting we had on that, where all of us were sitting on the Skype, there was no Zoom back then, uh, on the Skype call, and all of us were very suspicious of each other because none of us really knew each other. Maybe we vaguely knew one or, one or two of us would know each other, but this, none of the six knew everyone. Um, and it was a really weird conversation because it was a very silent one of everyone going, no, no, you go first. No, no, you go first. Um, and it really highlighted to me at the time the lack of trust we have in each other as Libyans and how much work was going to have to take place for us to build a coherent civil society. Because if these six lawyers who spontaneously came together, who all are in diaspora, have quite similar life experiences still couldn't really trust each other inherently then the road was really long and so that meeting was quite an eye-opener but also uh it also showed the nice side of, of civil society and coming together because you know after that cold initial conversation we very quickly worked together so that's how, kind of how lfjl was born despite all my planning and my very clear vision of what this organization would look like it ended up being something very very different not initiated by me in the first instance of that meeting um and so I always say I'm co-founder, not founder of LFJL, because there was a group of us. Uh, and so, yeah, so it wasn't as planned. Um, it was much more spontaneous than I would like in anything in life. Um, but it uh, it seems to be working. Ten years on, we're I think we're still around and we're doing we're doing work. Yeah, I don't think you I don't think you expected it to still be around after ten years on that first call, did you? No, and on the first call, we didn't even know what it was that we were. You know, we were just six Libyan lawyers who wanted, between us, had quite a lot of experience in different areas of law. We were geographically quite strategically placed unintentionally. But, it, you know, for the Libyan conflict in 2011, we were perfectly placed because I was in the UK. Um, we had someone in Paris. We had someone in DC. We had someone um, in the UAE. We had someone um, in Madrid. Um, and we had someone in New York. And so it was actually really fortuitous that we happened to be in, you know, th the three capitals that were most involved in Libya at the time, Paris, you know, DC, <coughs> sorry, DC and London. And so we, we became very act active very quickly because we just happened to be in the right place. So our contacts were useful in those cities we were in and we could galvanize um, our efforts in that way. And that was utter chance. It wasn't, it wasn't kind of, I wish I, I wish I could say it was strategic to think, oh, this is, you know, these are the dots on the map that we need to cover, but it, it worked. It worked that we were in the right place and we were all very committed, um, and all very genuinely passionate about the project. And I think that is absolutely what's necessary for something like this to, to start. Um, yeah. 
So you mentioned the problem of trust, and I definitely want to come back to that. But first, um, LFGL then was very different to LFGL now um, because you started off doing very ad hoc stuff. Um, what is LFGL now and what do you work on and what do you aim to achieve? Uh, it took a while for us stop, to stop doing ad hoc because I think, you know, as you're establishing yourself, a lot of the work you do is by necessity responsive because you're trying to show your relevance, right? So, and also you don't really have the weight to be, um, to be proactive in your agenda. You kind of have to be reactive in the initial stages until you establish your quality or your credentials. And also you're responding to an emergency situation at the time. Although it could be said that that's still the case 10 years on, it's constantly an emergency situation in Libya. And actually, we can come back to this if you like, but one of the most difficult things to do in running an organization like LFJL is to really balance between long-term projects that you really want to do and you've designed and having to constantly pick up the pieces on emergencies. And the balance between reactive work and planned work is, is a tension that we constantly have to address in the office. And whatever you do, you get it wrong um, with that kind of tension. But we'll get we can get that to that later if you find it interesting. But um, what we are what we are now, you know, we've, we've we've grown up a lot. Ten years is a very long time in in advocacy terms, and we have had um, a couple of moments of reflection. We, um, you know, about five years ago, we almost had to pull the plug because our key donors pulled out, um, thinking that Libya was no longer interesting after that initial phase. Uh, and so we, you know, we had six weeks worth of funding and it was a real existential crisis back then. And so after that crisis of, gosh, we might not exist after next month, uh, we, we, you know, we sat down and, and really restructured the organization, have been restructuring it and trying to bring in experience um, at different levels to it. And I think where we are today is, is very different and I'm very proud of the journey we've been on. But today what LFJL um, has achieved is that we've, we're, we're now, an, an, we actually have a structure. <laughs> we have um, people at different levels of experience supporting each other. So we, we work under three main programs. Uh, the law program, which sounds counterintuitive to have a law program in a legal organization, but law program means it's the program where you actually do legal actions. So that's kind of where the accountability work sits. So that's where we would bring claims or uh, cases. We then have our advocacy and outreach, which is probably the most prominent part of the organization because that's the outward facing work. So that's where we would do the advocacy to the Libyan state. Uh, to the to the third states and to UN bodies, um, and also outreach is the element of advocacy that's targeted at the public. So that's a bit of us trying to do kind of awareness raising or um, education, public education campaigns. And the third program is the research and capacity building, and that's kind of the spine of the organization, if you like, because that's where uh, the research that is needed for the other two programs happens. But it's also it's quite exciting because we now have a mandate within that program to do research for the sake of research, right? To, to kind of fill the deficit of knowledge gap in Libya, um, the, the deficit of knowledge in Libya. And the capacity building is the bit that I love the most because that's the bit where we work with Libyan civil society and our partners, lawyers, to build their capacity in a long-term kind of way. And I always say that that part of LFJL is really where our DNA sits because that's how we started is very much about supporting and, and um, capacity building. But it also is the bit where we're kind of trying to make ourselves redundant. The better we do that, the less people will need us. And that is the biggest sign of our success. 
Yeah, I think that should always be the goal of a civil society organization. Um, sadly, too many are content with just continuing to uh, alleviate the problem rather than ever actually getting rid of it. Um, and that's um, the, what you said about the recruiting problem in the human rights world um, feels connected to that to me, that there's this lack of uh, real vision in the NGO and human rights world um, that we tend to address urgent problems as they come up, react to emergencies, um, never truly plan ahead in the long term, um, and just keep going, keep crawling along day to day, rather than plan some truly radical change. Yeah, although I, I think I'd be kinder on the organizations themselves, because I don't think there's a lack of vision or a lack of will. I think there's a lack of resources, and I think that's different. Um, and the resources are both human, but also financial, right? So really, as amazing as your ideas are as a civil society actor, unless you can self-fund them, their ability to be realized is down to donors. And I think for me, that has been the biggest education I've had. And if, there, if I do have a time for a PhD, or if anyone out there listening to this is interested in a PhD, I think there is one about the impact of donor decisions on human rights um, outcomes. Because you can see, for example, where there has been a concerted effort by donors where there, you, there's been so much progress on certain human rights files, whereas uh, in others where there is less interest or less political will by donors to do that, we are still stuck in the kind of 50s, 60s um, golden era of human rights legislation and, and, um, and, and compacts that came out. And so I, I think for me, a big part of actually one of the big changes we decided as, a, as LFJL with our board and our advisory board is to spend time working on educating donors on what their priorities should be. Um, because I think until there, until we can get them to think differently, we will always be stuck in what we can do. And so I think there's a, a real conversation and a real debate um, and real reflection required on the role that donors, that donors pay. Because we we pay a high price for affiliating ourselves with donors, right? And, you know, the kind of the negative spin you always get on NGOs in, in our communities is that we're spies for these donors, etc. At the very least, for us paying that price, we should be able to do the projects we actually want, as opposed to the ones that are fall within their priorities. Yeah, not just um, not just a reputational price, but there's also a price in terms of attention, because you often have to pull your focus onto certain ideas um, or tailor the work from what you really want to do and what you think would be most impactful to doing that in a way which ticks certain boxes or even by just um, reducing your focus to like a one-year time frame because you're thinking on the time scale of uh, certain grants and certain proposals and, and never being able to plan beyond that because uh, you can't guarantee the funds on a longer time scale than that. Exactly. And I, and I think if you if you take a moment and think about the kind of work that an organization like LFJL does, we're not a, we're not a pure advocacy organization. We're an accountability organization, if I had to choose the term. Right. So even our advocacy is very much targeted at pushing accountability. Well, accountability work takes years, takes years. A case you can't resolve a case ever within the time frame of a, a year or two year grant. And so it's so difficult to sell to donors the idea that yeah, we need quite a lot of resources and no, you won't have any results for the next five years. Um, it's not an easy conversation to have and very few donors have that long-term that long-term vision, especially in the context of Libya. Libya's 
um, not a, for most donors is not a geographically prioritized issue. So you always have to fall under the thematic issues because very few will support Libya just for the sake of the, you know, the country. Um, most of those would be state donors because they're kind of mandated to do that because of their involvement in the country. So pre predominantly your donors will be state donors, which means that they're unlikely to support you in long-term projects because they have to show success to their taxpayers for the money they're, they're spending. Um, the real money for accountability sits, sits with more of the kind of trusts and the private donors, but for a lot of them, Libya still is seen as a, a rich country that doesn't need support. And so it doesn't even fit in their geographical priorities. And I think there is where there, a lot of work needs to be done to really change the mindset of donors about the country and about the issues that should be prioritized within that country. This incredible tragedy of a, a nominally rich country with over $100 billion of assets frozen in various bank accounts around the world in which uh, a large chunk of the population is uh, living destitute um, with rolling electricity blackouts, lack of water, um, lack of basic services, healthcare. Um, it's a really painful topic to discuss. Um, I'm sure you feel the same. Um, but one of Libya's biggest problems is getting people to care. Um, I love that you are actively educating donors. I've never actually thought of that. Um, but they're not the only group who do need to be educated on the country because um, it's got this notorious label of being complex, um, which has led to like a massive apathy about the country. Um, and leads people to lose attention very quickly or even be resistant to tuning in when something big does happen. Um, and that's even a large part of how uh, Libya got into this mess. Um, there's an infamous uh, quote from uh, an, uh, a profile of Barack Obama a few years ago um, when he's asked about his biggest failure and he basically says uh, Libya. Um, and he says, like, I took my eye off the country to focus on other priorities because I thought um, David Cameron and, and the French um, had it covered. And it turns out that they thought the same thing. So nobody had their eye on the country at the moment when the, um, the nascent political system collapsed. Um, how do you deal with that problem of getting people to understand it and go beyond just, oh, Libya is very complex? I mean, I think there's so many layers in how you set it out. And I actually don't even think it would, we need to look at outside the country to say there's apathy about the issues. I, for, for me, I think the biggest strategy is the apathy within the, within the Libyan population. Um, and their, their loss of faith in the rule of law, their loss of faith in human rights, their loss of faith in due process. I think for me, that is the biggest price we're paying in this. Um, part of that is, obviously comes from the larger apathy, but I just want to, I want to take a moment and think about that because for me, that's where the most painful damage is, and that's where the longest, the, the, the that's what will take the longest to heal, um, is the complete lack of trust that has developed in the systems that were developed post 2011, and in the, so you know, it, civil society went from being really celebrated in 2011-2012 to being seen as inefficient, ineffective, um, a hobby by many now, and I think that's the real tragedy. So. Uh, we should spend some time on that. But in terms of your question about kind of the, getting people to understand Libya outside of Libya and the kind of the international actors, um, it is complex. It's absolutely complex and it's really complicated. And, you know, that was one of the frustrations we had at LFJL when we were, you know, we, we were asked to do interviews or to explain Libya or to explain 
something that happens in a two minute slot on the news uh, is really difficult. <laughs> and it's, it's very difficult to do that when people kind of dip in and out of it constantly. And then you come in at a point where it's the culmination of years of issues. And now there's a flashpoint, which the news is covering or the politicians are interested in. And you're brought in to brief them for half an hour or you get two minutes on on the news and you have to kind of bring that all together. And so, you know, when there's an issue and there's a problem, you you design a podcast. And that's kind of what Libya Matters was about. Libya Matters is not really targeted to the public. Libya Matters was very the way we kind of designed it was to effectively provide a handbook for civil servants in, in the international community to understand the nuance in Libya and to use it to listen to as part of their preparation. And actually now, whenever we're told to go in and brief a new ambassador, the first thing I'll say is just listen to the first two series. And if you have any questions after that, I'll happily come and brief you. But I think it, it is designed to be kind of a manual or a handbook or whatever you want to call it for them to understand some of the nuance. Um, I know that's not going to fix everything. Obviously, I'm not that kind of um, egotistical, but I think it was one step of how we wanted to address this. Uh, the other thing is by um, constantly doing, you know, that's why advocacy is probably our best resource program, because, you know, it is about getting in meetings, getting in front of people, talking to them constantly, even when it's quiet time. It's about building relationships. And I know that sounds a bit dodgy for people who you're building relationships with foreign states, but you need to have that relationship where you can pick up the phone to someone when something goes wrong and not have to book a meeting through their secretary. Right. And that takes regular daily monthly weekly contacts with these people to build those relationships um and it, it's about constantly bringing it home you know ultimately all foreign policy is domestic policy and so you need to make it relevant to the home office for the foreign office to care in the uk or similar things in, in other um in other countries and so it's about bringing the issues home it's about identifying the 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 key points for each country um, in foreign policy, each country will have its key priorities. It's about doing your research, your homework, and not talking to every state about every issue um, because you know that they don't care about every issue. And and so that takes a lot of a lot of work. Some of it is is supportive and uh, providing information, and some of it is, you know, we will name and shame you if you don't do this. We will call you out as complicit if you don't do this. And people care about their reputations, and so there is a a lot to it, um, to getting on the agenda, but it's a, it's an all year job for them to react possibly that one moment in the right way, right? It's, you can't only rely on going to them when you need to go to them. You need to kind of be constantly their go-to person to then go to them when you need it. And so I think that is exhausting. It bears very little fruit. Um, it is quite deflating <laughs> at most of the time. And you also need to quite learn that absolutely Libya is not a priority for every country in the world. Libya is not a priority for many countries in the world. And we can't delude ourselves that it will be a priority, but we can persuade ourselves that for certain moments, for certain issues, at certain points in time, it will be. So there's two points there that I really want to pick up on. One is, um, so I absolutely love that um, the Libya Matters podcast is meant to be a kind of handbook for civil servants. I never realized because it's so listenable. Um, it doesn't assume any background knowledge, um, which I guess is where yeah, you have exactly. to start. Um, <laughs> I don't have much background knowledge. Um, I guess very often you're dealing with people who've just been bounced to the Libya desk like last week and have absolutely no background on the region at all. Um, but what I love about it most is that you don't center um, the conflict and military actors 
Um, I often feel like there's a kind of fetishization of militias in media coverage of Libya, like it's the only dynamic that matters or even the only dynamic that exists. Um, and I love that your podcast basically gives more of a window into um, sometimes the lives of ordinary people, sometimes um, crimes which uh, civilians are victims of, like enforced disappearance. Um, you know, sometimes more mundane aspects of daily life. It's not just about which militias have started to control which territory and and taken certain buildings and whatever. Um, which you know, Libya might be complex, but when that's the lens of reporting, it's also tedious uh, because nobody cares that X militia leader has taken over X neighborhood. Um, unless you can actually see what's behind that and what it means. Um, the other thing that I really wanted to come back to was, um, so you flipped the question from being about outsiders not caring to even Libyans not caring. Um, and that's something that's frustrated me um, for a very long time. Um, and it often feels like a kind of, I guess I'd put it down to despair because it often does feel like Libyans do not care about the situation anymore. Um, their only concerns are surviving day to day. And in the case of um, my cousins and friends, people closer to my age, um, how to get out of the country, um, how to, you know, how to get past the border or find a boat. Um, and it reminds me of some research showing that revolutions uh, normally don't happen when things reach rock bottom. Um, contrary to what you'd expect, revolutions normally happen in times of rising expectations, when the population feels like they deserve better and it's not being given to them, um, which is kind of where Libya was in 2011, where most of the region was in 2011, where um, uh, quality of life had been steadily rising for a few decades. Um, you know, there had been things like uh, the information revolution, satellite TV and the internet, um, education had reached, um, you know, would reach a very high level of literacy over the previous uh, 30 or 40 years. And now that progress was slowing down and they could very clearly see what the barriers were, where now there isn't that sense of rising expectations. Um, there's even a sense of, um, sometimes it even comes across as self-loathing. I don't know if you, um, if you sense that, but when people sometimes say things like, um, we deserved Gaddafi, um, or Gaddafi was better than this and things like that. Um, there's not a demand that we can have better. Um, and I feel like that's one of the most essential things. Um, and it's why I find your work so important. It's because you're actually teaching people about accountability and rule of law. Um, and you, you know, the meaning of these basic concepts and why there is nothing, um, essentially unattainable about them and, and they should be applied to Libya and they should be applied today and there's no reason that they can't be. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in what you said, but I, I, I think I wouldn't begrudge, I wouldn't begrudge Libyans on the ground their despair. And so my starting point is always to acknowledge that that is, a, that is okay to feel that. It's absolutely okay to be nostalgic it is absolutely okay to feel that this revolution didn't deliver on what you expected. I think those are are, are good, are, are normal, healthy feelings to have. Sometimes still having hope is a privilege. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think we need to, you know, we need to check that. I need, I think we need to sort of, you know, the the luxury we have is to have these conversations, right? 
and I and I think it, we need to kind of remember that we are not representative of the people on the ground. And for me, for example, one of the, my biggest challenges being a member of the LPDF is people's constantly saying to me, "Who the hell are you? You don't you don't represent me." And I'm like, absolutely, you're absolutely right to question me being there and having that seat. And I would do the same, and I do the same. I question my I question my entitlement to be in that room every single time I enter that room. Um, I'm not comfortable there. I'm not comfortable being seen as representative because I know I'm not. But I know what what my role is, and that's different. My role is not to be representative. My role is to be the idealist when everyone else has to be the pragmatist. And I think that is there, and, and I think that is is really important because I feel that I don't I don't I don't need to be practical. Um, but I can't ask someone who's dealing with with you know shelling and electricity cuts and water shortages and a healthcare system that's failing them, an education system that's non-existent, and no ability to for for any form of even a holiday with the COVID situation to relieve themselves. I can't ask them to think about long-term projects and accountability, but I can. And I think that's the balance, right? I, I think one of the things that is important is for all of us to take a step back and say, well, I can't say what everyone should do. I can say about myself. For me to take a step back and say, what is my role in this story? And stick to it. Not try to pretend to be someone else, not try to take on someone else's role, but really remember my very, 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 very small part in Libya's story and try to deliver on that. And then if I do my part and everyone else does their small part, then maybe we'll get somewhere. But if everyone feels they have to carry the burden of everyone else, it just brings us all down and we just crush ourselves. And that's where we're getting to. I was going to add that could be, we're framing that as a privilege, but that could equally be seen as a duty that we have by virtue of our position. Yeah, but I think that's quite self-congratulating, you know? I think to sort of feel that you're some kind of saviour is a bit self-congratulatory and I'm not comfortable with that. I feel that it, no one is required to do anything in life, in my opinion. If you choose to do something, identify what it is and do it. Do it well. But it's also okay to say, this is not my fight, this is not my battle, or I fought too hard, or I'm exhausted, or I just need a break. Um, and we, we see this a lot with our activists, you know, our partners on the ground, who, for me, the worst part of any story is for people to give up, not because they want to give up, but because they just don't have the energy to continue. And I think there is so much pressure on civil society in some ways in Libya to be the only functioning institution in the country, right? And so despite the fact that everyone tells you you're useless, really you're the only thing that still works in the country. And so there's this really weird pressure on civil society to fail, but also to be the ones that lift the burden of the state because the state is failing. And so civil society actors working on the ground are exhausted, they're broken. And what the conversations I constantly have with them is, why don't you take a break for six months? Like go away, do something else, refresh yourself and come back to the fight, but don't quit because you're just tired. And I think that is one of the, you know, one of the things we, we need to think about as activists as well is the personal toll of this on our on our on our colleagues, on ourselves, um, and how we make sure that we address that so that we don't just quit. Because I think that is kind of also the game that, you know, taking your podcast name on board that tyrants play on. They they play on the long game of exhausting civil society, of breaking it down. And that's one of the, you know, one of the top things on their manual to do. And so as civil society, we have to find ways to be resilient. Um, and so go, like, this is a very, very roundabout way to say, when we're talking to people about justice or accountability, it's not that they don't understand it. It's not that they don't believe in it. It's that they're 
they just have other priorities or they're just exhausted at the moment. Because we just finished actually doing um, quite a big survey of the whole country to see what people's perceptions of justice are 10 years on from the revolution. And we did that for two reasons. One is actually just for us to say, do we even, are we even right to say people want this, right? Or are we just being self-important to say we LFJL think people really want justice and accountability in Libya? So we wanted to go back to people and say, is this, is this actually the fight you want us to fight or is it something else? So that was a part for us to learn what to do. The second is really, we did, you know, we did the study in 2012, which was a really huge campaign talking to people about the constitution. And we wanted to see whether what people told us back then is what they understood justice and equality and human rights to be is, has changed in any way in those 10 years and how, in which direction did it change? Have people become more acutely aware of the importance of these issues or have they been disillusioned by this, the journey they've been on? And it's been a real humbling experience to go through this round of surveys because a few things came to light. One is people very much understand what justice is. Absolutely, inherently, instinctively, at their core, know what justice looks like. People want it at their core, not questionably want justice. And that hasn't, that hasn't weakened in the last 10 years. And for us, that was really empowering, enabling, reassuring that despite everything, actually what people still really want is a country that is based on the rule of law where people get justice. Maybe they're not articulating that the way they can, or maybe, frankly, they have too much to do with their daily life to spend time pontificating about these issues. But when they were put in, you know, when they were sat down and asked these questions, people's concepts of justice are, are not all reconciliatory. They want accountability. They want trials. They want reparations. And people understood the difference very clearly between reparations and compensation. They wanted, they wanted their damage repaired. Um, people understood that any kind of amnesty scheme had to be uh, Im embedded in truth. And so all these things that I think I went to university and did a degree in and did a master's in and spent time in South Africa studying, people knew inherently. They didn't need any of that. They didn't need me to tell them that. They understood what reparations meant. They understood what transitional justice meant at their core because they know the damage they're trying to address. And so now we've got that information. Now it's our turn to deliver. They've delivered by telling us these things, right? They've delivered by reassuring us of what the issues are. It's as part of this bargain, it's our turn to make sure that at the core of our work, we reflect that. Um, and, and that has been humbling for us. It's been inspiring for us. And it kind of been reinvigorating for us as an organization to say, okay, we can wholeheartedly pursue accountability knowing that it's not just some flurry of imagination in our part, but know that a lot of people in our country across the spectrum have said that this is what they need. Yeah, I, I, I'm normally enraged by this tendency to um, say that many of these ideas are Western constructs or impositions and that we have to find um, new ways of doing certain things which actually are not very Western and are not very contingent on your cultural background, they're just very human. Um, I'm guessing you agree from what you've just said. Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of cultural relativism when it comes to human rights, so yes. <laughs> um, but on civil society, it's, it's striking how a lot of people in places like Libya are playing a long-term game, but they're, uh, they're sprinting. They're not pacing themselves like it's a marathon. Um, and that always uh, worries me about the state of civil society because I wonder how many of these people who are doing such incredible work 
and and giving so much of themselves will still be able to be there in five years time or 10 years time if they don't manage to pace themselves yeah and that comes back to donors as well i mean i I, like if there is one message from this conversation we're having it's that you know we we always talk about holding people accountable and i think donors are, are are one of that group right to kind of because a lot of this pressure is created by the projects that they're that they have funding for so there's two types of civil society that um both in their structure are problematic one is this concept that civil society is the good work and therefore you must be a volunteer to do it and we have a lot of that in libya that you must maintain a day job with your activism you can't be a full-time activist and slowly that culture is changing but it's also because people see it as like this cute light work that people do and it really doesn't take you anywhere and and so for for your own kind of reputation prestige whatever you want to call it in your community you have to say no no I am I'm also a lawyer in a law firm or I also have an office I'm not just a human rights lawyer and so for us to be able to free people from that they need to be paid properly to do that it needs to be a, it needs to be a job it can't be a hobby and for the sake of victims we need it to be professional it can't be entirely voluntary based and so it's not selfish for people to say no this project needs to be funded i need to be paid a salary i need to be compensated for my time so there is a cultural shift that needs to happen and and that is something that will take time but we're seeing finally some of you know our partners like for example we now have a policy where anytime we ask a partner to do work we will pay them you know when we started we didn't have the resources to do that and we fed into this culture of them volunteering their time their evenings their energy their own resources and everything to do this work for us now we have you know we'll agree kind of um an honorarium or something to say you know how many days will this take this is your daily rate and you know we'll cover your travel we'll cover your uh, phone calls etc and that's not because we think we're great it's because we think that that is the only way you can build a sustainable civil society is to is to professionalize it and perhaps if we can co- cover their costs for the work they do for us that little bit of income can free them to do the work that they want to do right so it's kind of our you know it's a, it's a responsibility thing it's not something we should be thanked or congratulated for but it's really important to start seeing this and we have the most annoyingly long conversations with our partners of saying no 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 no, no. we can't take this money from you you guys are our partners and you know that kind of generous libyan culture I'm like i don't need your generosity for this this is not my money it's not coming out of my pocket my donor gave it to me if you don't take it i have to give it back to them so take it you know and having those conversations are really important that it's not a favor that it's not like it's it's actually what you earn by doing this work so there's that part of actually trying to move away from seeing this as a voluntary sector to it being professional and a, a career and not just a hobby the second part is um the part of donors putting projects that actually are long term and give people the opportunity to learn and to build their skills because it is a nascent civil society and so there needs to be room lots of room in these projects for error and lessons learned and developing and that's the way you build a civil society so some of our work again on this kind of uh, this very key priority for us of educating donors is to say when you're designing projects for partners on the ground they should be modeled in a very different way to the ones you do for international organizations part of it needs to be about their actual organizational capacity building so you know part of a project should be how you apply for other projects or part of a project should be about putting in place um you know the infrastructure of the organization so you genuinely make them sustainable and there are some donors that are brilliant at that kind of stuff and are really supporting people on the ground 
Um, but, you know, LFJL is, is hoping to launch um, an, an academy for NGOs where we, where we teach the boring stuff that no donor wants to teach. Right. And so there it's about how you do project proposals, how you have HR policies, how you hire people, how you build like the really, really unsexy stuff that no donor wants to fund. That will be our academy, like the most uninteresting work, but the vital stuff that makes you able to kind of then go off and do the work you want to do. And for me, that's where we can add value as LFJL. We, you know, we've, we've learned the hard way over the last 10 years. We've been on this journey, so we're not talking about it from an up down approach. We learned the hard way, how you set up an organization, how you get it funded, how you almost lose all your funding and have to come back again. Um, you know, how you don't rely on yourselves being volunteers, you know, for the first year and a half, two first year and a half, two years, none of us were paid anything. And that's why we were so unsustainable. Um, and so I think we learned through living this, what it's like to build an organization. And the very least we can do is take that experience and pass it on so we can make someone else's journey a little bit less painful. Right, so I think that's a great place to close. Um, but for everyone who's really fascinated by the ideas that they've heard on this episode and the work that you're doing, where can they find you and LFJL on the internet and how can they support you? Thank you for asking that. Um, so we're on www.libyanjustice.org, which is a name we came up with very early on as, a, as our um, as our kind of domain name. And, so, and sometimes I wish we didn't because Libyan Justice sounds suspicious in so many ways but it's just the that's the, the web the website is libyanjustice.org um we also have the ali Nuh um fund which is something we're really proud we talked a lot about supporting civil society on this episode and 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 how we can do that and the ali Nuh fund is a small way that ljl is trying to do that by um supporting human rights defenders who we work with who because of their work are at risk and so we help them to relocate and support them by doing that through this fund. So if people want to support the Ali Nuh Fund, we'd be grateful. That's um, Ali Nuh Fund. So it's A-L-I-N-O-U-H Fund dot L-Y. Um, so you can go there and, and donate uh, to support human rights defenders in Libya. And we would be really, really grateful because we can't do our work without them. And we need to be able to make sure that they're safe when we need to get them out. And the links to um, your pages and the Ali Nuh Fund will be in the description of the podcast. Thank you so much. And follow us on Twitter. See, I'm learning, I'm learning. We're at Libyan Justice uh, on Twitter. Thank you, Wilhelm. It's been a really fascinating conversation and I've learned a lot. Thank you so much. See you soon. Stay safe. You too. That's all for this episode of the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. There's an extra part of the conversation available on our Patreon, where we discuss the UN support mission in Libya, how to seek out opportunities to be held accountable in our work, and how to embed your values into your organization so that they continue beyond you. You can join us on patreon.com slash to access that. The link is in the description. As always, you can show your support by sharing the podcast or leaving a review wherever you listen. And thanks for listening. <laughs>